0: Versa versus Glock, the protection of lawful commerce in arms. It's a big Second Amendment case underreported in mainstream media. Larry Keane from the National Shooting Sports Foundation joins us. I'm Lawrence Clady and this is Legal Talk today. <laughs> Welcome back, listeners. I hope you're having a great day out there. And as as you heard in the intro, we're going to be talking about a recent Second Amendment case and what its outcome means for America's right to bear arms. But first, let's thank our sponsor for keeping the mics hot Noda. NOTA is powered by m and Bank because you went to law school to be a lawyer, not an accountant. Take advantage of Noda, a no-cost IOLTA management tool that helps solo and small law firms track client funds down to the penny. Visit TrustNoda.com forward slash legal to learn more. That's NOTA spelled N-O-T-A. Terms and conditions may apply. All right. right, let's Say hello to our guest, Larry Keene from the National Shooting Sports Foundation. Welcome to the show, sir. It's great to be with
1: you. Thanks for having us.
0: Absolutely. Thanks for being on. And I'm so glad we get to talk about this case. And so, you know, for those of us that follow Second Amendment cases, um, you know, I was surprised this one did not get more press attention. And then I read it. <laughs> and so when I read it, I found it to be, you know, kind of a fairly complicated sort of legal mumbo jumbo, you know, kind of behind the scenes, how courts uh, interpret different uh, meanings of laws and, and all of that. An important case nonetheless. And so, you know, the gist of this case, just for the, the benefit of our audience, Larry, is that uh, in recent years, and by recent years, I mean decades, there's been a series of cases where uh, firearms companies are sued when their customers. Um, you know, you l- use their products in a way that's illegal or they use their way, uh, use their products carelessly and end up injuring someone else. And instead of that person who's injured suing the person that actually harmed them, they'll sue the firearms company. And so this is important. And if, if you can imagine, you know, a similar kind of case against like Ford manufacturing, every time somebody drove drunk or every time somebody ran a red light and injured another motorist, you know, Ford Motor Company would be in uh, financial trouble. So before we get into it, talk about the importance of this case, let's talk about your expertise, Larry. You're a lawyer, but you also do work for the National Shooting Sports Foundation. So tell us about that.
1: Well, yeah, uh, I'm the general counsel for the National Shooting Sports Foundation, which is the Firearms Industries Trade Association. And before that, I was in private practice representing companies in uh, primarily product liability cases, including a number of firearms manufacturers. So I was involved in the early stages of the City lawsuits against the industry and uh, was heavily involved in helping to draft the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act and working to educate members on the Hill about why the bill was necessary and helped to build a coalition that you know, we formed that resulted in the, the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act passing in 2005 by a broad bipartisan margin.
0: Well, we're definitely going to talk about the importance of that act uh, on this case. But first, let's start with the facts. You know, tell us what happened and why the plaintiff decided to sue Glock, the firearms company.
1: So it's a tragic accident. And of course, you know, your heart goes out to the plaintiff in this case. But basically, the plaintiff was driving a church van, and there were a number of people in the vehicle and the person, the, the shooter, was, I believe, 14 years old, had in their, either in their possession or found in the car. It's a little unclear where the gun came from, but a Glock pistol. And she pulled the trigger on the firearm, causing it to discharge, striking the plaintiff and resulting in, in him being paralyzed as a result. So there were, I mean, those are the basic facts. Nobody was Criminally charged for the shooting, and it's not clear from the case who owned the firearm, or you know, was it the plaintiffs? Was did somebody leave it in the car? That that's not clear from the case, but uh, th- those are the basic facts.
0: Yeah, and as I understand it, part of the plaintiffs' case was that there was no magazine in this particular model of Glock, and and subsequently, the case that they're making is that someone would assume that the chamber of the firearm is empty when, indeed, in this case, it was not correct.
1: Right. The the allegation, there, there are a number of claims. It basically, it boils down to they claim the gun was defectively designed because the plaintiff claims that the magazine was not in the firearm at the time. She pulled the trigger, but there was a round of ammunition in the chamber. And so when she pulled the trigger, it fired that chambered round of ammunition. So they claim that the gun was defectively designed because it was capable of firing with the magazine removed, and also that the manufacturer failed to provide adequate warnings. And uh, they also claimed that some other design defect claims that it should have had what's called a loaded chamber indicator or an internal lock that would prevent somebody, a child or anybody else from using the firearm. But the main focus appeared to be a, what's known as a magazine defect claim and a failure to warn.
0: Yeah. And we'll get into that more later. I'm familiar with, with the Glocks design and their safety design. And actually it was working as it was designed, as it was, as it was intended. Uh, Glocks do have a safety mechanism, but the way that they do the safety is that you have to actually have a purposeful grip on there's a safety in the heel. There's a safety on the trigger. So you have to have your hand firmly wrapped around the firearm and around the trigger. And you also have to pull. That's the third part of the sequence that allows the, the Glock pistol to shoot. And, and I was watching some videos before, uh, the show to prepare, it does have an indicator. You can see whether or not you have a round in there. You'll see the shiny brass through uh, an opening. And so it does have those things, but that's how Glock designs their firearms. But before we get to some of those technicalities there, uh, Larry, I did notice that it's not just Carlos Daniel Treviso bringing this suit as the plaintiff. He has some help. You know, He has an advocacy group that's in support. He also has this law firm that's helping him out too. So tell us about the people that are helping the plaintiff in this case.
1: Well, there's a local, you know, Arizona personal injury law firm involved, but also representing the plaintiff in this case is the, the Brady Center and their their legal arm. And so, the Brady Center has been very active for many many years, going back, you know, into the 1990s, in representing plaintiffs in lawsuits against firearms manufacturers and retailers. And they have been uh, very active in bringing cases, trying to challenge the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act.
0: And then plaintiff did not sue anybody else but Glock, correct?
1: Uh, that's correct. They did not sue the shooter or the owner of the firearm. They only sued Glock Inc., the U.S. company. They also named Glock GmbH the Austrian company. But I don't believe that the Austrian company had been served or appeared in the case. So it was really just, this decision really just involves Glock Inc., the U.S. company based in Smyrna, Georgia.
0: So basically not, not the person that actually shot the plaintiff and not the person that left the firearm to be discovered by the teenager that shot the plaintiff, correct?
1: That's correct. Just the manufacturer.
0: Okay, so let's talk about how this uh, case got into federal court. Now, as I understand this will probably involve, uh, that this is a matter of your expertise, the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act and how it protects firearms manufacturers from certain types of liability. So walk us through that. How did it get into federal court? How does that act apply here?
1: Well, it was originally filed in federal court because there was complete diversity between the plaintiff and Arizona resident and Glock and the the Austrian company. So it was filed in federal court initially and under various claims being asserted under state Arizona state tort law. And so Glock moved to dismiss the case as being preempted by and not allowed by the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, which provides manufacturers and sellers of firearms immunity from lawsuits if uh, they meet, if the lawsuit falls within the definition of a qualified civil liability action under the act, so it's um, that was what was raised by Glock on their motion to dismiss.
0: And that's got some exceptions to it. If one of those exceptions is made, the plaintiff can advance uh, despite the fact that this act exists. So let's turn to the claims that the plaintiff was making in this case. Uh, as I understand it, there were two based on strict liability and two based on negligence. And you got into it a little bit earlier, but maybe kind of walk us through those four claims just a little bit more.
1: Yeah, so there were basically four claims asserted. One was a strict liability based on the defective what they claim was a design defect of the pistol, you know, the magazine disconnect issue, the chamber load indicator, the absence of what they call an internal lock, and the failure to warn. So they were all lumped into the first claim, which is strict product liability. They also, the second claim was also a strict product liability claim focused on what they say is the failure to warn or to provide adequate warnings. Uh, which is, you know, is pretty standard in any product liability case. The plaintiff always asserts a failure to warrant claim. The third claim was a negligence design of the handgun for basically all the same reasons we that underlie the strict liability claim, the first claim. And then the fourth claim was a negligence claim, a generalized negligence claim, asserting that Glock had had a duty that had breached uh, not to have products that, you know, to avoid foreseeable risk of injuries to others. And they, in that, uh, asserted that Glock had negligently marketed the firearm and also, again, the negligent warnings. And so those were the four claims that were asserted under Arizona state law against Glock in the case.
0: Now, this enters the point where the, the court starts to go through this really complicated analysis of the canons of construction. And, and all four of those claims met up with some resistance here because the protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act would supersede that which was available in Arizona. And so walk us through the canons of construction and how the court pulled meaning and made certain interpretations that steered it away from a state, uh, I guess, a state-based liability claim and put it right in the crosshair, so to speak, of the protection of lawful Commerce and Arms Act.
1: Yeah, well, as you said before, it's a pretty complicated decision legally. A lot of uh, different canons that were raised by the plaintiffs in opposition to Glock's motion to dismiss, based on the protection of lawful Commerce and Arms Act, and they they were asking the court to interpret the statute in a way that it would not apply to the action, so that it could go forward. All of their arguments were ultimately rejected by the court. So one of the canons that they tried to raise is what's known as the Federalism Canon, which basically says that you know unless Congress is clear in the act that they intend to significantly change the federal state balance, you know federalism. And so normally, tort law is a matter of state law, and so their argument, was that Congress didn't intend to disrupt that balance and to supplant or preempt state tort law claims. And the court rejected that based on the clear language in the statute. It is very clear that Congress intended to and did in fact provide immunity from uh, many of the lawsuits that get filed against manufacturers if the statute applies, which is a criminal shooting where the plaintiff's injuries arise out of a the criminal or unlawful misuse of the product, which is the case here, that's a quote unquote qualified civil liability action. So the court rejected the federalism canon. They also tried to argue that unless there that there's a presumption against preemption, unless it's expressly clear, just sort of a variation of the federalism canon. And the court rejected that as well and said it's very clear that Congress did, in fact, intend to preempt state tort law claims, except for the exceptions that are set forth in the act itself, which the court ultimately turned to the exception that would allow a case to go forward that was relevant to this litigation. And then there were a couple of other canons that the plaintiffs argued about how the court should interpret the statute. They suggested that Congress didn't intend traditional standard tort law claims to be preempted, only novel, creative, new claims. And the court rejected that based on the clear language in the statute that allows certain traditional tort law claims like, for example, negligent entrustment or negligence per se to proceed if that was relevant. So the court rejected that construction as well. And then, of course, as often as the case, the plaintiffs argued that the legislative intent should be looked at. You know, And of course, the court only turns to legislative intent and the, and the legislative record if there's ambiguity in the statute. And there really isn't ambiguity in the statute or uh, you know, as to its application in general or whether the exception applies and as the court pointed out, which I thought I had never read this line before, but I, I thought it was very well put. And the court said that you know, looking at legislative history. There was arguments on the plaintiff side. There's arguments on the defendant side. And the court ultimately said, look, look, looking at legislative history, the Congressional Record, the floor debate when the bill is considered, is a little bit like looking out over a crowd and picking out your friends. So you only left the port, you know, the the comments that that you like and you ignore the ones that aren't helpful. And the court at the end of the day said, we don't turn to legislative history unless there's ambiguity and the statute's not ambiguous. So and those are the you know the tenets. Uh, it's a long part of the discussion or the decision is is exploring these canons and the nuances and how they applied or or didn't apply, as is the case uh, in this case. So it's, pretty interesting case to read. And I would agree with you. I'm not quite sure why this case case was decided back on March 10th, but it only has recently gotten any kind of media attention. I'm not quite sure why that is, but- um,
0: I think it's because it's complex, but I mean, just kind of bottom lining what you just said, because I mean, there's a little bit of wind up there. Essentially what was determined here was that all of the state bound, you know, a tort law would be just not looked at because this ultimately was determined to be an unlawful act committed by the teenager. And because it was considered by the terminology, uh, the definition given to be an unlawful act by the teenager, it applied. And so the protection of lawful commerce and arms act applied. And basically the firearms company cannot be sued for the unlawful actions of another, correct?
1: That's really what the protection of lawful commerce and arms act is all about. If it's a Criminal misuse of a firearm, and that gives rise to the plaintiff's claim, you can't sue the manufacturer unless you you fit within one of the six exceptions, which again are traditional normal claims like breach of contract, breach of warranty, product liability claims are allowed unless the firearm was discharged in a volitional act, which was constituted a criminal offense. Which was the case here, the court determined, then the court then the act says that is the sole proximate cause. And so whatever their claims are about a design defect, if a person volitionally, meaning willfully pulled the trigger and that caused the gun to discharge, that's the sole proximate cause. And again, you know, if a firearm functions as designed and intended, and it's lawfully sold by the manufacturer and the retailer and is then later subsequently criminally misused or used in an unlawful manner, you can't sue the manufacturer or the seller. Just to go back to your analogy at the top of the show, you can't sue Ford for drunk driving accidents. And so you know, the court found that the conduct of the shooter did in fact constitute a criminal offense. The plaintiffs had argued that because she was a juvenile and no one was criminally prosecuted, That there was no criminal offense, but the court rejected that argument, as have other courts that have considered it a situation where the person pulling the trigger was a juvenile, uh, but still the conduct is a criminal offense. And whether the act applies shouldn't turn on whether a state prosecutor chose to prosecute a juvenile as an adult or a child in juvenile court. So you know, that was that was relevant in this case as well.
0: Well, last question for you, just to wrap it up, and we're just about out of time. You know, this ultimately was dismissed on a 12B-6 motion to dismiss. And so I guess what weight do we put behind this case's precedent? Does it strengthen the enforcement of the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act?
1: I think it does because the court relied on Ninth Circuit precedent, particularly, for example, that one of the arguments the plaintiff's made that is the act is unconstitutional. That argument has been rejected. Only one court has ever said the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act is unconstitutional. And that appellate court decision has been set aside because the, uh, the Pennsylvania appellate courts have granted en banc review. So it strengthens the case law that this is a constitutional act, that, uh, at, that it applies to... Lawsuits that fit within the definition of a qualified civil liability, where whatever the plaintiff's theory of liability is or whatever cause of action, if it arises out of the criminal misuse or unlawful use of a lawfully sold, non-defective firearm, the manufacturer and the product seller cannot be sued. It is not blanket immunity, as President Biden has alleged and and others, uh, because it does have specific exemptions that allow traditional lawsuits to go forward like breach of contract and and a product liability case that is not the result of the volitional act of the shooter pulling the trigger, causing the gun to discharge.
0: Well, Larry, I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: It was a pleasure to be with you. Thanks very much for having us. You
0: know, and if our listeners, they want to learn more about what you all do at the National Shooting Sports Foundation, how can they find you?
1: Go on the Google machine to n SSF.org and you'll find our website and we have a lot of information about hunting, target shooting, and all of the policy issues that you know go on at state capitals and, and in Congress on, on firearms policy issues.
0: Excellent. Excellent. And thank you, listeners, for choosing our show. We know you have other options out there. So your time with us is much, much appreciated. And also, thank you to our sponsor, NOTA. You can find them at trustnoda.com forward slash legal. That's Noda spelled NOTA spelled N O T A. And last but never least, thank you to our team, producer Molly McDonough and our LTN audio crew for all of their hard work. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody.